the number one cancer killer in the world is also in some ways remarkably misunderstood. This year, more than 200,000 Americans are expected to be diagnosed with lung cancer, and more than 150,000 are expected to die. For many other cancers, survival rates have risen the last few decades, not so with lung cancer. In the absence of screening or early detection implementation, the overall five-year survival for all comers with lung cancer is about 16%. And it really hasn't changed dramatically over the past several decades, despite some of our improvements in the delivery of care for these patients. That's Dr. Andrea McKee, chairman of radiation oncology at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in suburban Boston. A lot of that has to do with the fact that in the absence of screening, about 70% of patients will be diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer at presentation, either stage 3 or stage 4, which is in large part incurable lung cancer. Only about 30% will present with stage 1 or 2, which are the more curable stages of the disease. In general, we don't talk about cure very often unless we are able to find the disease when it's very, very small. We call that early stages, stage one or two. Medical oncologist Dr. Heather Wakeley is associate professor of medicine at Stanford University and the Stanford Cancer Institute. When patients are diagnosed with stage four lung cancer or metastatic lung cancer, as it's also called, those are most of the patients that I'm seeing as a medical oncologist. And unfortunately, we don't really know how to cure people in that setting. That doesn't mean we can't help them live with their disease for a period of time, and that period of time can be years in many cases, but it's living with the disease as opposed to being able to say that it's completely gone. About 85% of people diagnosed with lung cancer are current or former smokers. The other 15%, more than 30,000 Americans per year, have never smoked. Often, non-smokers are diagnosed in later stages of the disease because no one's expecting it or looking for it. Dr. Joan Schiller is deputy director of the Simmons Cancer Center at the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas and president of the advocacy organization Free to Breathe. In the United States, about 15% of all lung cancers occur in individuals who have never smoked. And the majority of those individuals do not have a big risk factor for getting lung cancer that we know of, such as radon, although radon is a risk factor. In fact, that number is going up. Lung cancer and never smokers is going up. And if we could somehow today eliminate all lung cancers in smokers, the number of lung cancers in never smokers would be higher than the number of deaths due to pancreatic cancer, for example, or leukemia or AIDS. Lung cancer in never smokers is a real health problem. We do see lung cancer in never smokers, and we're not entirely certain as to why we're seeing this now, because we do know that tobacco is an important risk factor for the development of lung cancer. We think it may be a genetic predisposition to the disease, because the cancers that we're detecting in never smokers, actually, they look a little bit different, both under the microscope and cytogenetically. The genetic profile of those cancers are a little bit different, and so we tend to treat them a little bit differently. However, Schiller and Wakeley say most people treat anyone with a lung cancer diagnosis the same, almost as if they deserve to have their disease. Whenever anyone tells anyone that they have lung cancer, the first reaction usually is, did you smoke? And it's really kind of funny because when somebody comes down with diabetes, nobody says, well, how many Big Macs have you had? When someone has a skiing accident, nobody says, well, what were you doing on skis? But for lung cancer in particular, we seem to have that blame the person attitude.
And that's very challenging for the patients who have never smoked, but also for those who have. And those who do smoke or have smoked in the past are then given this tremendous guilt burden, which they certainly don't need as they're trying to heal and live with their disease. And those who have never smoked are usually very, very distraught by those assumptions and questions. It's devastating for everybody who gets lung cancer that stigma's there and that they're asked about it, and it comes up almost immediately. It's not something that comes out later. It's instead of the, what can I do to help? That's the question that comes out first. Did you smoke? Society has successfully demonized and stigmatized smoking in an effort to get people to quit or not start in the first place. But Schiller says it leaves lung cancer victims in an uncomfortable place. In the 60s and 70s, when the anti-smoking campaign happened, many of us remember those types of ads where smokers were depicted as decrepit, deformed, elderly people. And I think that unfortunately what that did was gave smokers and smoking a bad name, a bad image, and now it's backfiring. So unfortunately, instead of helping lung cancer patients, we blame them and somehow assume that therefore they don't need as aggressive treatment as patients with other types of cancer. Schiller says she's often told by patients referred to her that doctors have offered no treatment and no hope. Unfortunately, there's a great deal of nihilism around lung cancer, which is becoming more and more unfounded. I mean, lung cancer still is incurable once it's metastasized, but so are many other types of cancers once they've metastasized. And we have made small but sure steps in the treatment, so people now are living longer and better with the treatments we have these days. However, progress might have been quicker were it not for the stigma. Lung cancer kills more people than all other cancers, and more women than breast, ovarian, and uterine cancers combined. But Wakely says lung cancer gets less money for research than many cancers. A lot of folks are afraid to say that they're behind lung cancer research because that's looked at somehow as supporting smoking. We're trying very hard to move away from that so people understand that this is a disease that kills innocent people, that even people with smoking history certainly don't deserve to have this disease, and we all should be working together to try to figure out better ways to treat. From the federal government, for example, when you do it on a number of deaths per year, lung cancer gets one-tenth of the amount of federal funding for research as does breast cancer, for example. However, researchers have still been able to uncover some important findings that are saving lives. We know now that lung cancer in non-smokers is often different than it is in smokers. Never smokers tend to get a type of lung cancer called adenocarcinoma that is often associated with very specific mutations. And it turns out that if you have one of these mutations, you will get lung cancer. I mean, it drives lung cancer. And we've identified more of what we call these driver mutations in never smokers than we have in smokers. Many lung cancers are caused by single mutations in a specific gene. So these are mutations that are not found in the rest of the person, but are only found in the tumor. And we understand that when a particular gene mutation happens, that can be the driving force behind a given cancer. And what's been identified is that it is more common to find these single gene mutations in people who develop lung cancer who have not smoked. 
people who develop lung cancer who have a smoking history are more frequently found to have multiple gene mutations, which are harder to target. According to Schiller, about a quarter of lung cancers have one of these two mutations, which Wakely says are known as ALK and EGFR. And we find EGFR gene mutations in about 10% of all lung cancers. The percentage for people who have never smoked is higher, somewhere in the 30, 40, 50 percent range, depending on the population, versus in smokers, it's lower, but it's still found. If someone has a history of smoking but has an EGFR gene mutation, their cancer is going to behave the same as someone who doesn't have a history of smoking and has an EGFR mutation. So it's the molecular change in the cancer that's what's really trumping everything else. But the frequency of finding those mutations is higher for people who don't have a smoking history. Testing for whether a cancer has the EGFR or ALK mutation is important because doctors now have two drugs to treat them. The drugs are easy to take and don't have the side effects of standard chemotherapy. They target only cells with those mutations. And most importantly, McKee says, the drugs are extremely effective. These targeted therapies are a little bit like Babe Ruth, that if you looked at his batting average, he was just one of the greatest ball players out there and could really knock the ball out of the park. But if you looked at how many times he actually swung the bat, it's not that many. And it's the same concept with these treatments. They can be home runs and great treatments in the right patient if they have the right target that we can manipulate with these different targeted treatments, but not everybody has them. And so when it works, it's wonderful and you can see really miraculous responses to the drugs. I mean, it's amazing. People can have an extraordinary burden of disease and have a complete response with these targeted therapies if they have the right gene profile for the drug that we're using. When we find those gene mutations, we can give oral medication pills that work in the majority of patients. So 60, 70% of the time, very rapid and dramatic responses to the therapy where the tumors shrink away. The challenge is still that those are not cures. The cancers do tend to regrow, and that's where ongoing research is looking at better drugs, newer drugs that will work when those stop. The new targeted therapies can buy some people with lung cancer years of quality time. A national clinical trial is seeking to find out whether these drugs might be curative if the cancer is found earlier. More standard therapies have a chance only when the cancer is caught early. But unlike for cancers such as prostate and breast cancer, guidelines haven't existed for lung cancer screening. Wakely says that's finally changed. We now do have recommendations for people with a heavy smoking history to get an annual screening CT scan. That's something that's offered at Stanford and at many other centers. The guidelines at this time focus only on patients who are at least 55 years old and have a significant smoking history. And as I mentioned, that's still going to miss a lot of the patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer either at an earlier age or without a smoking history. It's a significant step forward because we have had trials completed that showed that people who were getting these annual CT scans who were at, in those high-risk groups actually had a reduction in mortality, meaning that fewer of them died from lung cancer if they were getting the CT scans versus those who were not. So we have the capacity, if we are doing the low-dose CT scan screening in enough patients, to lower the number of people dying of lung cancer. One of the areas where we've proven we're going to save tens of thousands of lives each year over the next coming years is through screening and early detection. And so those are patients whom 
are at risk for lung cancer but have not yet been diagnosed with lung cancer. And so one of the messages we really have to get out to primary care and to patients at risk is to learn about screening, learn about who would qualify as high risk and who would benefit from a low-dose CT of the chest and enrolling in a CT lung screening program and teaching hospitals all over the country how to actually perform screening safely because this is a new area of medicine that is really developing in real time. Most centers last year had no screening program. This year we're seeing them develop all over the country because this is an area of medicine that is going to be adopted into standard clinical practice. So little by little, medicine is making gains against lung cancer. It's still the world's number one cancer killer, but at least now many of those diagnosed may have a fighting chance. You can find out about all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.net, where you can also find archives of our segments. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Annually, nearly 610,000 Americans with acute coronary syndrome undergo a procedure to open a blocked heart artery. Many receive a stent and are prescribed an oral antiplatelet or OAP medication for one year. Taken with aspirin, an OAP reduces the risk of a recurrent heart event and blood clots from forming in the stent. However, patients might stop taking their OAP because they don't understand its role or importance. According to Lola Koch from the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurses Association, or PCNA. Studies have shown stopping OAPs early is associated with a greater risk for another heart event or death. PCNA, the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, and Mended Hearts, with support from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated and Eli Lilly and Company, have launched after the stent. Follow your action plan to help healthcare professionals gain insights into why patients stop taking their OAP medication so they can better educate their patients on the importance of OAP adherence. For more information on OAPs, visit pcna.net or secondscount.org.